This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Please turn in your Bibles tonight to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Um, this morning I spared you from some excess genealogy reading, but tonight I'm going to do some excess genealogy reading. I'm actually going to start at verse 1 of Matthew 1, and I'm going to read the entire chapter. So, Matthew chapter 1. Hear now God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Amon, and Amon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiud, Abiud begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. And then this tonight is our sermon text. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together... She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets. 
saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we approach your word tonight, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would ready our hearts to receive it, that we would uh, see the comfort and the peace that has come to us in our Lord Jesus Christ, that he has come as our Savior, as our Lord, and as our King of Kings. We pray that as so much is going on this time of year in the celebration of holidays, that we would keep the birth of Christ front and center, for it more than anything else is worthy of our, of our attention and our celebration. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not the biggest celebrator of Christmas. I maintain a firm rule in our house that no decorations shall be displayed before Thanksgiving. And whatever decorations are put up, I'm not going to be the one to do it. So you look through the window, you see our tree over there and anything else. Like Heidi did that, give her all the credit. Um, Because she's more than happy to do it, and she knows that I'll be a miser about it, so she doesn't even ask. She just (laughs) takes care of it. And every year when she wants to do it, I just joke that we're going to become old Scottish Presbyterians and not bother with Christmas anymore, because uh, historically the Presbyterian tradition hasn't particularly been fans of Christmas either. Just this week, I was... uh, I recorded a podcast with four other Presbyterian ministers from around the country, and I was actually in the minority of of guys who would observe Christmas in their churches at all, which was kind of interesting. I wasn't really expecting that. Um, You'll notice here on the night before Christmas, we're doing a pretty normal service at our normal place and normal time. That's a very fine old Presbyterian thing to do as a reaction to all the superstitions and unbiblical observances of medieval Roman Catholicism, many of the Protestant reformers wanted to do away with all religious holidays, instead emphasizing the 52 Lord's Days as the only days which God has ordained for his worship. The other holidays and festivals seem to have usurped regular and proper biblical worship. There is something of a point to this. Even now, there is something of a struggle among Christians to keep what is supposed to be the reason for Christmas central. Christmas can become about the gifts and the toys and the cookies and the winter activities and the snowstorms. And it can just, if we're not careful, it can become an entirely worldly and secular pursuit. We can certainly at least appreciate the problem that our Presbyterian forebears were dealing with, and that something originally meant to remember and commemorate Christ's incarnation became a detraction and distraction from that intent in many ways. 
But the original intent and purpose of Christmas was to mark and remember and commemorate Christ's incarnation. Now, we should do that all the time, but often we don't. Part of it is the fact that Christmas is treated as such a big deal, so all of our talking about the incarnation typically gets done then. Like, I really like a lot of these Christmas hymns and some of the theology in them. We picked one of my favorites tonight, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and has one of my favorite lines in it. Born that men no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. But if we sang that in April, you'd probably think it was a little strange. But it's still true. And since it's true and sound and biblical, we're going to look at the reality of Christ's incarnation tonight through the shorter of his two birth accounts, this one taken from the Gospel of Matthew. And we see tonight in Matthew's account three points of interest for us. First, a discovery in verses 18 and 19. Joseph learns some troubling news about Mary, whom he is betrothed to Mary. And second, we see disclosure in verses 20 through 23. We see particular angelic revelation to Joseph concerning what is going to happen and how the prophets of old foretold this very thing. And then third, we see delivery in verses 24 and 25. All of these things come to, come to pass according to the will of the Lord. So first tonight, we look at discovery in verses 18 and 19. So in verse 18, we are introduced here to Mary and Joseph. Now, Matthew doesn't go into much detail about them here. He did just present the genealogy of Joseph, which I read for you. Although note at the end of that genealogy that he was very careful to describe the relationship between Joseph and Jesus, not of one, not as one of ordinary parentage. It doesn't say, like it does in all the other steps of this genealogy, that Joseph begot Jesus. Now, why is that? Well... You probably already know, but if not, you're about to find out. So we learn that Mary and Joseph are betrothed. Now, betrothal is an engagement to be married, but in that day it was a bit different from how we handle these things in our modern culture. A betrothal back then was much more serious. It was essentially a marriage contract that was just missing the wedding. If one wanted to break off a betrothal, it wasn't like now breaking off an engagement where you basically just could return the ring and go on about your life like it never happened. Ending a betrothal back then would have actually required a divorce proceeding. Now that becomes very important when Joseph makes a troubling discovery. Though he and Mary had not yet wed or come together, it was discovered that Mary was with child. Now, in all the normal and natural ways that make sense to us, there could only be one cause of this. If Mary and Joseph had not come together, and if Mary's having a baby, then it would appear that Mary had been unfaithful. Of course, that all assumes that everything has happened according to the natural order of things. But in fact, there has been an act of supernatural intervention. 
before Mary was with child, this all being recorded in Luke chapter 1, an angel came to her and told her what was going to happen. In Luke 1.35, the angel says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One is to be born, will be called the Son of God. Now Mary saw and heard this, and she believed. In fact, she later in that chapter responded with the Magnificat, the song of her soul magnifying the Lord. Of course, the problem is that while all of this unique supernatural activity did occur, and Mary believes it, that's going to be a really difficult thing to convince others about. What reason has anyone else, including Joseph, to believe that Mary is having a baby in a way that literally no one else in the history of the world has? I mean, think about it. If any of you had a daughter or a sister or a fiancé who came to you with that story, you wouldn't believe it either. And Joseph, as we might expect, does not initially believe but at least he's willing to be nice about it. As we see in verse 19, we learn that Joseph is a just man. He's not spiteful, he's not vengeful, he's not cruel, but believing what just about anyone who's betrothed is with child would believe, he does want to deal with the matter. He just wants to deal with it discreetly and privately. He wants to divorce her, but he doesn't want to bring great public disgrace on Mary that conceiving and bearing a child out of wedlock would bring. Now remember also that in the time of Jesus, that adultery was a capital offense. If people were found being unfaithful in their marriages, they could be stoned, they could be put to death. So there was legitimate danger and risk here. So Joseph doesn't want that. He wants to be merciful. He doesn't want to bring any more scorn or shame or suffering on Mary than this situation would already bring. But he also quite naturally doesn't want to marry a woman who it appears has been unfaithful to him. Joseph is just a very normal person making very normal and human and understandable decisions. Of course, the problem is, this is not a normal situation. All of these things that Mary claimed had happened that had never happened before in the whole history of the human race were true. Matthew knew this, properly recording that Mary was with child by the Holy Spirit. But what would it take for Joseph to believe this? And this brings us to our second point. After discovery, we come to disclosure in verses 20 through 23. Well, what it will take for Joseph to believe is what it took for Mary to believe. Namely, God will have to reveal it to him directly by an angelic messenger. So we see that one day while Joseph was thinking about these things, contemplating these things, weighing them over in his mind, an angel came to him in a dream. Now the angel greets Joseph, Joseph, son of David. Now, as we read in that genealogy in the first part of the chapter, it had already been established that Joseph is not only a son of Abraham, or of the house of Israel, but he is also a son of David. Now, why does this matter? 
Well, David was the great king of Israel and the father of the kings of Israel and Judah. You see, as you follow this genealogy, Joseph is from the line of kings. Now, also, God had made some promises to David in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 14. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. So when David became king, God promised that a king would come from him and after him who would be established forever. One who was a son of David, but also a son of God. Now the problem is that by the time of Joseph, that had never happened. David reigned for Israel for 40 years. Then he died. He was succeeded by his son Solomon. Now Solomon was a great king in many ways. He expanded the border of Israel. He conquered more enemy territory. He was given wisdom from on high. He accumulated great wealth. Of course, he also took hundreds of wives and concubines and from this turned aside to idolatry to foreign gods and then he died. So he wasn't going to be the king that fulfilled the promises of 1 Samuel 7. Well, let's try another. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, the successor. He took unwise counsel from the younger men of the kingdom, and this led to the kingdom being divided. Most of the kingdom by land and population being lost to the line of David. So Rehoboam's not going to work. And oh, by the way, he died too. There'd be many other wicked kings from the line of David those who turned aside to idolatry and falsehoods and deceptions. And of course, all of them eventually died. There were some good kings from the line of David too, though. Kings like Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and Josiah, to name a few. They all did good things, though they all also had their sins and flaws. And continuing this particularly annoying trend, all of them died. None of them reigned forever. None of them were reigning at the time of Joseph. That covenant, that promise with David still stood unfulfilled. In fact, in 586 BC, Judah was overthrown by the Babylonian Empire. And after that, though there remained a line and descendants of David, as we saw, none of them were king. By the time we get to Joseph, he is in fact nothing more than a Galilean builder. No other descendants of David were doing the job either. Judah was now Judea. It was an occupied Roman territory without a king of its own. But this angel greets Joseph as the son of David. Now Mary, his betrothed, was also of the line of David. If you read the genealogy at the end of Luke chapter 2, you notice it's different from this one in Matthew, and that is because it's actually Mary's ancestral line. But why does all this matter? Well, because the answer to how the covenant promises of 2 Samuel 7, and the also the answer to where this baby came from and who he is, are in fact one and the same. 
The angel tells Joseph what Mary was told earlier. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So yes, that story of a baby being conceived in a way that no other baby in the history of the world had ever been was true. Joseph need not be afraid. Now, there would be many reasons to be fearful in such a situation. What if this really was the scandal he feared? What if Mary really had been unfaithful and what if she would do it again? What about the public reaction? What would people think of him if he married her anyway, knowing this? One of the most reiterated and restated commands that God gives his people all throughout Scripture is to not fear. And to those whom God is with, they have nothing to fear. Joseph feared God and therefore had nothing to fear. And God reminds him through his angel that he ought not fear what is behind or what was ahead. For the child that was to be born was of the Holy Spirit. He would, in fact, be the son of David that would sit on David's throne forever the King of kings and Lord of lords. But this child would not merely be a king. I mean, that would be a big deal in itself. But this child, as the angel tells Joseph, was to be named Jesus. Why? Because he would do something that even the most powerful kings in the history of the world could never do. He would save his people from their sins. Now, not to belabor the whole king talk again, but all those kings I listed for you earlier, all of them were sinners. Many sinned publicly and grossly. David was an adulterer and murderer. Solomon was a polygamist and idolater. Every other king had their flaws and failings. Even kings needed to be saved from their sins, as did everyone else who was born in Adam born into this fallen and sinful world with the guilt of Adam's sin and the guilt of their own sins for which the wrath of God was kindled. But this child that had been conceived by the Holy Spirit, supernaturally, of a virgin, unlike any child ever born in history, would save his people from their sins, including his parents, including Mary and Joseph. We read in verse 22 that these words and the resulting actions were not just done for their own sake, but they were done to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill the word of God, particularly Isaiah 7:14. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So the child who was about to be born to Mary was not only a king, he definitely was a king. He would be David's son that would reign forever. He was not only a savior. It was obviously quite important that he would be for all of mankind being fallen and sinful needed a savior. And the scripture spoke of a Messiah, an anointed one, a savior to come. But as if that was not enough, this child to be born would be God himself. 
God who came down. God who took on human flesh. God who lived and dwelt among His people. God who lived a life of need and want and suffering. God who experienced weakness, hunger, thirst, temptation, loss, betrayal. All the things in this world which are broken. All the things in this world that scream at us that this world is not as it is meant to be. He would be God who laid down his life, suffering the cursed death of a cross, drinking the cup of the Father's wrath down to the last drop so that there might be none left for his people. God who on the third day was raised from the dead, God who has ascended to heaven, and yet God who still ever lives to intercede for us, and God who will return for us one day. Emmanuel, God with us. Our Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God and Son of Man. That was who Isaiah prophesied. That was who all the scriptures of the Old Testament were pointing to, disclosing and anticipating God came to us. God lived among us, walked among us, so that He might be our Lord and Savior and King forever. But after this discovery and disclosure, we now come to our final point, the delivery in verses 24 and 25. So Joseph, awakening from his sleep, did what the angel said. He took Mary as his wife. They had no relations until after this son was born. And just as the angel commanded, Joseph called his name Jesus. All of this happened according to the definite purpose and plan and will of God, down to the smallest details. From who was chosen? Two descendants of David, though themselves quite average and unimpressive. Down to the place... Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now Mary and Joseph did not live in Bethlehem. They lived in Nazareth in Galilee. That was actually pretty far away. Took a special Roman census to get them to the city of David so that Jesus might be born there according to the scriptures. Bethlehem was the city of David where David had come from. As we saw this morning, it was also the city of Rachel where she died and was buried would be shown through Herod's later persecutions of the area that even this was according to God's plan. But what do we do with all this information? How do we receive the news of one who was born in this way and for these purposes? The angel told Joseph that this Jesus would come to save his people from their sins. Well, friends, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have done those things which God forbids and left undone those things that He required. By our own righteousness, by our own merits, we deserve nothing but death and judgment and condemnation. Just like all those kings I named earlier, we are all one day going to die. And when we die, we will stand before God's judgment seat. And if we come thinking that our righteousness is sufficient, that we're good people, good enough for God to accept, we are sorely and eternally mistaken. But Christ came 
and lived and suffered and died and was raised so that those who are united to him by faith, those who repent of their sins and believe in his name, may receive life and salvation, forgiveness of sins, a new heart, a new hope, and after this life, eternity at home and at rest with God. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, whoever repents of their sins and believes in his name will be saved. For Jesus Christ came to save his people from their sins. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your son, the greatest gift that we have ever received. We thank you that he came as our Lord, as our King, as our God, and as our Savior. Pray that you would write his word on our hearts, that we would believe it, that we would know it to be true, not only for others, but for ourselves, this gospel. And I pray that we would take Christ's name where it has not been heard. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.